Hey, Kev, let's let's follow this trail over here. This looks like there might be something waiting down there. All right. Hey, wait a minute. Do you hear that? Yeah, I thought it was just me. What the heck is that? I don't know what that is. Whoa, do you smell that, too? That's unbelievable. Hey, look. What the? Hey, look, those, those branches are moving over there. What the heck is that? Holy cow, is that what I think it is? Look at that thing. It, oh my god. It's a freaking Sasquatch. Welcome to the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters podcast. I am your host, W.J. Sheehan. Hello, everybody, and once again, may I welcome you to our podcast. My name is W.J. Sheehan, author of the series Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters, nine volumes available to date at Amazon in paperback, ebook, and Kindle formats, and volumes one through eight, and soon to be volume nine as well are available in audio format at Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. So go out, buy a couple of copies. Christmas is coming. Stuff them in a stocking or put them under your wife's pillow. Buy a book, for God's sake. (laughs) And you'll make me very happy, I think. And now, may I introduce you to my brother, and co-host of this fine show, K.J. Sheehan. Kev, how are you? Oh, I got a bit of a cold, Bill, but otherwise I'm good. Yeah, all that running around you've been doing, it probably just ground you down a little bit, you know? Yeah, it happens to me a lot of times right before the holidays because I, I got all these meetings, week-long meetings, kind of nonstop, and uh, come into... Thanksgiving holiday usually gets sick because it all catches up to me, and I I didn't let anyone down this year. Same thing. (laughs) But I apologize, folks, if I sound like Rudolph with the mud on his nose, whereas (laughs) mom and dad cover it up so it won't glow. I don't want this on my nose. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the old Rudolph mud pack. (laughs) Uh, remember his father with the baseball cap on? Oh, yeah, yeah. He was like the uh, football coach, you know? Exactly. Son! <laughs> hey, you know, I want to give a little shout-out to uh, one of our beat reporters for the podcast, uh, Rick in Ohio. Uh, Kev, I'm going to send one of these out to you. Uh, Rick commissioned his daughter, who's quite the artist, to make up some uh, large tumbler, you know, hot and cold, like, uh, travel mugs for us. Nice. And I'm telling you, man, uh, black and stainless with uh, Bigfoot walking in front of a couple of, uh, uh, you know, spruce trees or something, they are freaking wicked cool. All right. So, you know, a couple of weeks down the road, you'll get this. Uh, the next time I'm going over to the post office, I'll uh, uh, 
put them in a little. I already have the box, so I'll put them. You in know, a maybe box. before you seal up the box, you could throw one of those autographed copies of one of your books in there too. Unfortunately, the box is almost the same size as the mug, <laughs> so that that won't be possible. Well, I'm never gonna get that. Book. Even know? with a cold and mud on my nose. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what are you gonna do? I mean, I'm. I'm trying to conserve money and uh, paper yeah. and everything else, you know. Uh, <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, uh, Rick, outstanding job. I wish he would have left his daughter's name in the letter. I would have given her a shout-out, but he just said my daughter. Well, you can understand why he's protecting his family from the crazy Bigfoot guys. <laughs> But yeah, Rick, thank you so much, and thank you to your daughter. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm sure it's fantastic yeah. and really appreciate it. Hopefully my brother will send you an autographed copy of one of his books because he <laughs> certainly hasn't sent me one. <laughs> That's not happening. Had he sent the fourth Tumblr, uh, a book may have been available. But uh, Oh, boy. But two Tumblrs. Doesn't push you over that threshold. Very tough, Rick. He's very <laughs> tough. Don't take it personally. And just a little shout out here. I've been thinking about a listener to the podcast who I was in communication with back a ways. And Sean in uh, Post Falls. Sean in Post Falls. If you're listening to this podcast today, I want you to send me an email. I'd like to catch up with you a little bit, see how you do. Is that Post Falls, Idaho? That is Post Falls, Idaho. Man, that's not far from where I used to live. Uh-huh. I used to stomp around Post Falls, Idaho. Well, there you go. And uh, Sean, uh, give me a shout. Like I said, I'd like to catch up with you. And by the way, folks, you know, uh, for those of you who think I'm maybe some type of elusive character or something... I talk to a lot of people from the podcast, and if you ever want to chew the fat or you've seen something or want to talk about uh, strange incidences, you can always uh, email me. Uh, only the people I've spoken to know that this happens, and they're all shocked when I call them, like, you know, oh, my God, it's WJ. <laughs> <laughs> and just to be clear, folks, I'm the elusive character. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of weird, <laughs> Kev, you know. But uh, I love talking to the people from the podcast, and uh, I've made a lot of friends. Uh, so anyways, Kev, what do we have in our cryptids in the news and other oddities segment today? Yeah, so we're going to go a little different today, Bill. Um, in honor of the upcoming Thanksgiving holiday. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I mean, I was sitting around this week fighting my cold, and I was like, I wasn't even thinking about the podcast, but I was like, you know, we we always think about Thanksgiving, the original Thanksgiving back in 1621 up in Plymouth, Massachusetts, as being like this happy-go-lucky celebration between the Native Americans and the pilgrims or Puritans, whatever you want to call them. And it's always been like a little... I don't know. How did that really happen, right? Uh -huh. I mean, is it just me or? <laughs> it may be just you, but we're going to find out. <laughs> <laughs> but it turns out, um, you know, this was, uh, you know, the Pilgrims or Puritans, and they settled down in Plymouth, Plymouth, Massachusetts, um, with the Wampan Wampanoag tribe 
of Native Americans for an epic three-day feast. So it really was a three-day feast, uh, and it was a fantastic feast. And it turns out that the Wampanoags had to walk two days to get there. So, you know, that's why it was a three-day feast. <laughs> to doing. You didn't want to walk two days, hang out for a couple hours, and then walk home for two days. <laughs> so it turns out that Thanksgiving has a long tradition of overnight guests as well. Uh, what kind of overnight guests? <laughs> exactly. Um, so, but but when you look at what happened to bring them together, and then we'll talk a little bit about what happened after that first Thanksgiving too. A lot of bloodshed took place before and after the first feast between the colonists and the Native Americans. And in fact, today, many Native Americans mark Thanksgiving as a solemn day of remembrance instead of celebration. Oh, that's it. So they remember how many people got killed in order for that first Thanksgiving to happen and then after that Thanksgiving. Well, that's interesting, huh? Yeah, it's kind of interesting, too. It's, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, a, a television series, as I get into it, where, like, you had one leader of the Wampanoag that, you know, really wanted this to happen. And kind of forced everyone, my word, not theirs, right? But, you know, led everyone to make this happen and be peaceful. And then it turns out that, you know, when he passed away, his son, which we'll get into a little bit, was not as keen on the idea. Uh-huh. Yeah. Kind of like a mob family get-together. I, You know, Bill, it is a little bit like <laughs> that, you know, where one of the leaders says, hey, we can't do that. You know, the feds are going to come down on us if we whack this guy. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and then he passes away and his son is like, we're going to whack this guy. Yeah. Hey, get away from my sister. I told I you to leave her alone. <laughs> so let's go back to the feast for a minute. So imagine, so it really was a big crowd. So there were 90 uh, Native American men and 50 Englishmen came to the feast. Okay. And they do describe it as Native American men and 50 Englishmen. So I don't know if, like, women couldn't come to the feast or what. <coughs> but what's really interesting is you always have this vision. And sorry for the cough, folks. There's going to be a lot more of that. Um, you always have this vision of everyone sitting around the big Thanksgiving table but it turns out, they say, when you read about it, that the Native American folks sat on the ground hmm. and ate, and uh, Englishmen sat at the table. Now, I don't think the Englishmen barred them from the table or sent them to the children's table or anything like that, but that's how Native Americans ate. They didn't sit around the table. They sat on the, sat on the ground. Uh-huh. So they did, in fact, do that. They did play a lot of uh, games, like uh, different kinds of marksmanship, uh, and had foot races and stuff like that. So it was a feast and uh, some games along with it, right? Mm-hmm. Bill, you still there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? <laughs> I can, yeah. yeah. I didn't hear I'm you. wondering, were they playing like Parcheesi or Othello? Uh, it might have been a little Monopoly, but, you know, that <laughs> usually causes an argument at the end of it. <laughs> so this first Thanksgiving was in 1621. And uh, the Wampanoag leader, or mob boss in our earlier description, uh, called Massasoit, he negotiated a treaty between the Plymouth settlers and the Wampanoag tribe in 1620. So the year 
prior to the first Thanksgiving feast. And that agreement um, included an agreement or pact that no one from either group would harm anyone from the other. They also agreed to leave their weapons at home when trading. Uh, And this was, you know, of course, to, you know, ensure peaceful commerce between the two groups. And for about 10 years, the uh, Massasoit, the leader of the Wampanoag, and the pilgrims remained allies, trading English goods for Wampanoag land, access to natural resources, and other assets, right? Right, right. Interesting, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then, though, after Massasoit passed away, his son, Mob Boss Jr., Wamsuda, took (laughs) over, and tensions began to simmer again. Uh. And in the years between 1630 and 1642 alone, about 25,000 European colonizers arrived. And there was a devastating plague that cut the native population by more than half. We know about that. And the two were probably related, right? Right, right. All these Europeans brought some sickness with them that the uh, Native Americans didn't have uh, immunity to. And then um, then Wamsutta, mob boss number two, died mysteriously while visiting the Puritans to to discuss the gathering unrest between the two groups. So you could only uh, only imagine what happened there. You know, maybe it was an accidental death, or maybe he just got sick, or a bad set of circumstances, nonetheless. Because yeah, I mean, maybe they brought him uh, uh, for a little meetup in the basement in Staten Island. Yeah, but even <laughs> if they didn't bring him for a little meetup, if he had just died of natural causes while he was there, you know, there would be those who would say they killed him. Absolutely. You know, unfortunately. Right. So then uh, uh, after Wamsutta um, met a comet, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, he took over and he was even angrier. Hmm. So, you know, he was like, why the heck do we have this whole uh, agreement? You know, nothing good's coming. All of our people are dying and stuff like that. And then met a comet, took on an English moniker, so an English alias called King Philip, which is kind of interesting. I never heard of this before. Um, so Metacomet, who became known as King Philip, started a war. Oh, boy. And they call it now King Philip's War. Huh. Yeah. Um, so they went at it for years and years, and um, they say that it could have claimed, this war could have claimed about 30% of the English population and half of the Native Americans that were living in New England. Wow. Yeah, so you can understand why they often uh, celebrate Thanksgiving with a day of remembrance, right? And, you know, you're talking a, a huge number of people there. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. And now, you know, we get a little bit uglier as well. So um, this, this, uh, this war ended when Metacomet was killed, otherwise known as, uh, what, do we, what do we call him? King K- Philip. King Philip. Right. And he was, he was beheaded, dismembered, and his, the rest of his allies in the tribe were either executed or sold into slavery in the West Indies. And the colonists impaled King Philip's head on a spike and displayed it in Plymouth for 25 years. Wow. 
So there was a, a tribal uprising. They had had enough of this guy. They were blaming him at this point. Well, no, this is a, this is in the war. The the uh, the uh, uh, English killed Metacomet or King Philip. Oh, they killed him and dismembered him, and and they dismembered him. Oh, yeah. okay, I misunderstood you. I thought sorry. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, and then they killed the rest of his uh, friends. You know, his uh, warrior friends, and then the balance of them they sold into slavery in the West Indies. Wow. But, you know, you never hear about them taking this guy's head, right, this Native American's head, putting it on a spike and leaving it outside the gates of Plymouth for 25 years. Wow. It's like a Vlad the Impaler deal. Exactly. You know, I mean, we don't really often talk about that when we're saying, Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, watch out. Hello. Uh, whose skull is that by the front door, Mommy? <laughs> Ah, we're just picking up on an old tradition, you know. (laughs) Mashed potatoes, someone's head impaled at the front door. Looks like Uncle Bill. Where's he been? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, he's fine. Say hello to him. (laughs) So, Bill, Thanksgiving has a little bit of a darker past than we think of. But, you know, that, again, folks, I don't mean to be... Johnny Raid Cloud, although it is part of my role, <laughs> um, you know, I do uh, wish all of you and your families a blessed and happy Thanksgiving. Let's have no uh, uh, mob hits around the Thanksgiving <laughs> table or, uh, I mean, if there was such a thing as the mob. Yeah, know, yeah. Let go of some don't impale anyone's head outside right. uh, the house as a wel- welcoming gift. You know, not, not a good idea. Well, you know, this little thing of ours <laughs> that we call Bigfoot Terry in the Woods <laughs> <laughs> turns down some strange paths, folks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and for people who are new to the podcast, yes, we are Bigfoot Terror in the Woods. But we talk about Bigfoot. We talk about a lot of strange things. And that's why the first segment is called cryptids in the news and other oddities. So that was certainly under the uh, heading of other oddities today, Kev, that... Yeah, a little Thanksgiving celebration. Yeah, a little hatchet party in the woods. With plague, you know. hatchet party, <laughs> impaling. Remember, throw the hatchet at the target. Please pass the stuffing. <laughs> Oh, my God. Well, I tell you, folks, uh, I have something pretty cool here. I've actually pulled this one out of the archives because, uh, as I say, there's always new listeners, and I love uh, the historicity of some of these uh, accounts, and I like to go back through them or back over them uh, to kind of refresh myself and... uh, and, of course, the new listeners. Not everybody goes back and listens to 175 podcasts, although there are some people who do, <laughs> repeatedly. But this account was uh, originally told to me by Brian Hoffa. Uh, no relation to Jimmy Hoffa. <laughs> <laughs> In keeping with our theme. Of Staten Island basements. <laughs> uh, he was a resident of Queens, New York. Uh, Whoa. 
Might be a might be a relative, and he's not claiming to be a Could relative. Could be. I mean, such things happen, as you know. <laughs> now he's an Uber driver. <laughs> uh, and this is what Brian had to say. The story of which I am about to speak was actually handed down to me from my father, having been told to him by my grandfather many years prior. My grandfather had passed in 1971, and his wife, my grandmother, had died several years earlier in 68. At the time of his passing, I was six years old. To be truthful, I didn't know him very well, he being a very quiet man, but I loved him just the same. It was during the process of cleaning out Grandpa's house, many things were taken, including an old photograph, which was framed and had been hanging on their home's wall. I had seen this photo many times before, but only now was I to learn the history behind it. Many weeks later, this picture was now hanging in our home's living room. And I asked my dad if Grandpa was the man in the picture, or one of the men in the picture. My dad told me no. Grandpa was the guy who took the picture of the other men and the camp. I suppose a brief history lesson is in order as I begin to relay this story to you and your readers about how it is that my grandpa and these men came to be where they were when the picture was taken. If I'm a little bit off, please forgive me. I'm by no means a historian. In 1916, what is now known as the National Park Service was formed under the presidency of Woodrow Wilson. At its inception, it was formed to protect and preserve vast areas of wilderness and the like for the good of the nation and its peoples. There were many great men involved in both overseeing and contributing to this system through the years. John Muir, Theodore Roosevelt, Gifford Pinchot, and Stephen T. Mather, to name a few. In 1903, during a coast-to-coast -coast trip, Roosevelt had come to visit Muir, who was camping in Yosemite. And after having spent the night and awakening to five inches of freshly fallen snow, a spark seemed to have ignited within Roosevelt's heart. And so it was that in 1906, the Antiquities Act was passed through Congress, which gave sitting presidents the power to create national monuments from the public lands. Roosevelt acted quickly with his newfound power, and the first monument to be created was Devil's Tower in Wyoming, with many others to soon follow. 
It was during, however, the 30s and the 40s, 1930s, 1940s, amidst the throes of the Great Depression and the war that followed, that the public was now clamoring to get into the parks. But how to get to them and what to do when you got there? That was the dilemma. Now it was in the hands of President Franklin D. Roosevelt to devise a plan, and so the Civilian Conservation Corps was formed. We're getting there, folks. Hang in there. In 1935, the Corps had 118 camps located around the country. It was employing tens of thousands of men with work, building roads, bridges, and the needed infrastructure for the parks to be seen and enjoyed. My grandfather was part of the Corps, and this picture was a snapshot of one such camp. The photo shows a grouping of seven large military-style tents, of which I am sure there were many more, with what appears to be portable folding wooden tables set up and some men splitting firewood in the foreground. My dad had said that the men were heavily armed, according to his father because there were many wild animals to contend with, including grizzly bears, which were regularly coming into the camp. Grandpa had also told him that the men regularly shot and butchered animals for food, also fishing when near the water. Grandpa had told my father of many encounters which the crew had during the course of their construction with what he described as being giant, hairy men. He had told my dad that on many days and nights, the hairy men had entered their camp, stealing food, and in some cases doing considerable damage, their calling card being enormous footprints left behind in the camp which were particularly visible after it had rained. I should also mention that the camp that my grandfather was at was in the Shenandoah Valley near Luray, Virginia, and that this picture was taken in 1935. According to Grandpa, Early in the morning of 1936, August, the camp had erupted with screams, shouts, and gunfire. After the melee had subsided, it became known to all that one of the men, while sleeping in a tent with seven other people, had been grabbed by his ankle and pulled from his cot by one of the hairy men. Upon the man shouting, the others awoke, throwing hand axes at the beast. Grabbing their rifles and shotguns, they gave chase across the grounds of the encampment. He had told my father 
that many shots were fired, but the beast was not killed. From that day forward, sentries were set in place throughout the camp, both day and night to fend off the invading hairy men. He told my father that the monsters, as he called them, were of enormous stature and strength. The men, during the course of their work, had both seen and heard them felling trees with their bare hands and dragging them through the timber. And my dear listeners, it seems to me that these boogers have been around for quite a bit longer than most of us suspect. I wonder what its intentions were in dragging that man out of his cot in the tent. What do you think of that, Kev? That is an awesome account, Bill. You know, and like we say, I, I was having a con. We'll get back to this. I was having a conversation uh with uh, Philip the other night. Uh, We were just hitting on the burial mounds located around uh, the United States, North America. And then we broke off into talking about some of the Indian tribes around the country. And uh, Philip made an excellent point. Uh, And I'll follow up with the point that he made. He said that, you know, these tribes were unknown to each other. For instance, Kev, the tribe you were talking about uh, involved with the uh, pilgrims had no idea there were Lakotas uh, out in the United States. Or No, unless they were adjacent to one another. Right. You know. Unless you were sharing land or crossing borders, right. you would have no knowledge of the tribes that were... Or I would guess if it was told to you, right? They had such a rich tradition Mm -hmm. of storytelling. Mm -hmm. You know, it could be that, you know, it's like, well, I heard out west there's a great land, you know, that kind of a thing, right? (laughs) From some traveler, you know. Yeah, I could see that happening too. But the, the point I'm getting at is that many of these tribes had a name that they gave to the hairy men of the woods, and that's where we came up with Sasquatch. That was one of the names up in the Pacific Northwest that took the place of, quote, Bigfoot when that made the headlines. But I wondered, you know, if they had known about it or shared it, would they not have shared the name? And then somebody said to me, well, they all had different languages. Yes, I get that. But if I learn a word in Spanish that is uh, describing some type of Spanish dish, or let's take the term chupacabra. I was going to say, how about chupacabra? Right, perfect. We don't change the name of chupacabra from that language to an English version. Uh, And here's another one for you. Rougarou. Perfect. So the French term rougarou, uh, we don't make that something else. It is what it is. So the point I'm getting at was these Indian tribes 
had a variety of names that they had given to what they had encountered in the woods, which was this hairy man that we call Sasquatch or Bigfoot. Uh, so I wondered, like, with these guys here, uh, they're in uh, West Virginia. Let me go back here just for a second. A anyways, it really doesn't matter. Yeah, Shenandoah Valley near Luray, Virginia. There were creatures over there. There were definitely some indigenous people there. Uh, I mean, Philip, you could fill me in. I know Philip's listening. Philip is Cherokee. I'm sure that the Cherokee were in that area. Uh, they had names as well for these creatures. And here you have these guys working for the, uh, basically what we know now is like the Parks Department, uh, creating roads, restrooms, bathing facilities, you know, the stuff that we encounter now if you go to a, your typical uh, camp or, or national park, there's things there, you know, that people can take care of themselves. Maybe. Sure, trails, the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. the signage. Campsites. Everything. You know. And these were the kind of guys that were setting that up. But what a crazy thing, huh? Uh, that's a wild story. I didn't know where you were going. I, as, uh, you know, somebody that loves the national parks and stuff, I did enjoy you talking about um, uh, David Muir and Teddy. I'm sorry, John Muir and Teddy uh, out in the early days at uh, Devil's Tower, Yosemite. And then I was going to tell the folks, like, I don't know, you know, our West Coast population, there's a redwood forest, a small redwood forest, not as famous as the big redwood forest in Northern California, right as you head north across the uh, uh, Golden Gate Bridge, you exit to the left after you cross over on the north side called Muir Woods, yeah. uh, named after John Muir. And that place, I mean, if you're ever kicking around San Francisco or whatever, and you want to get away for a little while and go for a walk, oh my goodness, spectacular. And it really reminds you of these, you know, folks that had the vision to preserve these different places. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting, Kev, because you know my faith. Uh, there's a biblical scripture that says, without a vision, my people perish. There's something about the need for us to have forward-thinking vision uh, for the good, yeah. In other words, to preserve, protect, uh, to ensure uh, quality of life issues for people and children come behind us, you know? Yeah, and I mean, some of these places will be there forever anyway, like Devil's Tower. You know, this famous uh, Mesa, Butte, whatever it's technically called. It's a little more than either of those. Right. Um, but, you know, made famous, I think, in uh, Close Encounters, uh, the movie Close Encounters. Um, but, you know, I've driven across, when I was driving across Wyoming for the first time, and you come upon this thing and you're like, oh my gosh, like, what is that? Right, right. Yeah. Incredible. Now, we say, oh, they'll be there forever, but I want to bring to your attention something we're both well familiar with. Uh, people who live in New Hampshire... Oh, yeah, uh, good point. No, their license plate always said live free or die on the bottom. And then there was a picture of the old man of the mountain. 
And uh, this was a, if you've never seen it, it was pretty spectacular. Uh, it was a granite formation on the edge or the precipice of what you would call a cliff. And the profile looked like an old man. Right, Kev? Oh, yeah. Spectacular. And, uh, well, what was that, about 10 years ago it fell off the side of the cliff? Yeah, probably about 10 years. So now all we have is the memory. Uh, I guess the plates still have the face on there. Uh, although I haven't, I don't know. I haven't. They do. I mean, I've seen them recently. They still have the uh, the face yeah. on the uh, on the license plate, and they still have. Like I was up in New Hampshire last summer, I think, or the summer before. I lose track. Summer before, and um, it's pretty cool, Bill. They they still have the pull off there in the park up in the White Mountains, where you where you used to go to see. The viewing spot for the old man in the mountain, right? Right. And um, now they have this kind of a cool thing of, uh, it's super hard to explain, but it's these um, steel um, uh, heads, like the the pieces that would form the face of the old man on these poles about 10 feet high, and they tell you where to stand and look up so that you align with these pieces of steel and it shows you what it used to look like superimposed on the cliff. Oh, it's kind of like a stencil that you're looking through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of cool. It's hard to explain, but I was like, that's good for someone that never really saw it. Mm -hmm. Because it is a little mysterious, right? I mean, of course, you can Google and look at it, but it's kind of cool to stand there and look at what it would have looked like, you know, right. 15 years ago or whatever. I mean, it's like, you know, the uh, the presidential faces in South Dakota. Yep. Uh, you know, I mean, they're relatively permanent looking, right? But who's to say, uh, you know. Oh, they could fall. Yeah, something, absolutely. Uh, 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 earth earthquake or a rumbling and uh, something cracks and ba-boom, you know, comes, something comes down, you know. No doubt about it. But uh, yeah, this uh, this account of this encampment and uh, being handed handed down and the old photograph and I don't know, Bill. I, I I know I always say it, but I love these historical encounters. Yeah, you know, I just think they're super cool. Yeah, they're rich. Yeah, you know, and uh, I was just telling somebody at, uh, last night at work. Uh, you know, that I engage a lot of people and therefore I hear of a lot of things. I'm willing to stir the pot and stick my neck out there. And uh, last night was one such little talk we had. And I found out that somebody I've been working with for a long time had a supernatural experience that she never shared with me. And one of my other co-workers lived in a haunted house in New Jersey for years. Wow. And, uh, you know, so there are things going on out there. Uh, Tom, the guy doing my front steps, Kev, his grandparents had a mansion upstate New York that was built by an old riverboat captain uh, who used to run the St. Lawrence River. And the house had a gatehouse attached to it. And another house on the property, which I guess at the time maybe some help lived in there. Uh, but the guest house was so rife with demonic activity, the people were so freaked out 
that they had called the church to do an exorcism in the house. And Tom had shared with me that when he was a young boy visiting up there, he was in the barn one day, didn't see anything, didn't hear anything. He said he was so freaked out just being in the barn, like why would that just happen? He never went back in there again. So you talk about strange happenings, you know. <laughs> yeah, that qualifies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you want to go milk the cow? No. That is a great. That is a great account, though, Bill. Yeah, great account. Yeah, yeah, great account. So, while my voice is still with me, we're going to move into some listener mail. And of course, last week, Bill, we did announce a bit of a contest. Oh yes. And uh, several of our uh, emails that came in that I'm going to read are related to said contest. And I think at the end, you're also going to announce who the winner is. That is correct. Cool. cool. <laughs> so and do you want to repeat that question, Bill? Just Well, I had asked, there are two countries that shared the same flag. Basically, uh, unbeknownst to them at the time, they each had the same design and the same flag. And I wanted you to answer the question, who were the what are the names of the two countries? Right. And uh, that was the contest. Cool. And I didn't know who they were, and I didn't uh, Google it. I figured I'd wait to see what our listeners said, so... So our first email comes in from Lee, and uh, oh, and then you also asked, or I asked, what my favorite color was, too, so they <laughs> threw that in. So Lee wrote in, um, hi, Kevin and WJ, always a pleasure. As to Bill's question about identical flags, here is my answer. <coughs> Excuse me. When Liechtenstein participated in the 1936 Summer Olympics Games, in Germany, it discovered that the national flag of Haiti had the same blue-red pattern. To avoid confusion in the future, the following year, a yellow crown was added near the hoist of the blue stripe in the Liechtenstein flag. Now, for Kevin's favorite color, I'm going to guess Yowie Brown. <laughs> <laughs> Keep up the awesome uh, podcast, guys. I look forward uh, to every episode. P.S. You were wondering about the correct pronunciation of my name. It's pronounced Lee. And yes, I am a guy, all six foot, 220 pounds, from my scruffy beard to my size 12 triple E boots. You could say I am a short Bigfoot. <laughs> Awesomely. Awesomely. Oh, man. People are funny, man. Yeah. And then uh, John from Pennsylvania on the flag contest, he said, uh, it was during the 1936 Olympics that Liechtenstein and Haiti discovered they shared the same flag. And just John telling us a little bit about himself, which is always cool. I am a retired police chief. From northwestern Pennsylvania. Sometime I'll tell you about some of my Bigfoot and UFO experiences. Yeah, now I contacted him and asked him to give me a call. I'm hoping he does so because, you know, 
I don't know what some time is. You could be dead tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I don't think he's calling you back. Yeah, though, I don't know. People are funny, you know. <laughs> it's interesting, you know. You know, Police chief, yep. you know, he probably been out and about quite a bit in different communities and answering calls of a variety of different uh, things, you know. Yep. So uh, you remember that encounter we read about uh, a couple of months ago where those guys showed up at that trailer and the guy dove out the window and they got involved in that foot chase. You remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that was a, certainly a domestic dispute that could have got real ugly. Yes. Uh, but uh, anyways, yeah, let's move on. All right. And our next email comes from Angie from Colorado. And she says, hi, guys. The two countries that had the same flag were Haiti and Liechtenstein. Another correct answer. And she says, Kevin's favorite color is black. Like black-eyed children. <laughs> Love that answer, Andy. Uh-huh. And by the way, what is your favorite color? I'm guessing it's black. Can I borrow your telephone? <laughs> Certainly. Would you like Can to come, I come in? come in? Certainly. <laughs> Why don't you sit over there while I get my over and under out of the closet? <laughs> I'll be right back. <laughs> and then, uh, by the way, Angie goes on to talk about, she says, when Kevin visits Denver next time, he should visit the Sasquatch Outpost in Bailey, Colorado. Uh-huh. It is about a 45-minute scenic drive outside of Denver. I think you guys discussed the Sasquatch that was transported across the country to this museum in one of your earlier podcasts. Mm -hmm. So that must be the Frozen Man, maybe. I don't know. I don't know, but I will definitely. Thank you, Angie. I I always love scenic drives in and around Denver, which they're all scenic out there. And uh, I will definitely check that out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you're out there, Kev, I know you're out there periodically, so... Maybe you could I give am. a little report on the place, you know? No, it should be good. should be good. Yeah, interesting. And finally, before you announce our winner, Bill, I'm going to uh, read the note from our field correspondent that you mentioned sent uh, us some beautiful tumblers. Uh-huh. So Rick from Ohio. And he wrote, uh, Hi, WJ, good to catch up with you today. I also wanted to pass along a book title that might be useful to Kevin as he's looking for interesting cryptids to cover each week. It is The United States of Cryptids, A Tour of American Myths and Monsters by J.W. Ocker. Hmm. Sounds pretty cool. Yeah, we'll have to look into that, you know. I'll have to put it on my Christmas list there, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, along with nine copies of Bigfoot Terror in the Woods. Exactly. Well, maybe 18, you know, nine print and nine ebooks. <laughs> Or maybe 27, uh, nine audiobooks as well. Yeah, 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 very interesting. Can't have enough of the hairy man. Yeah, now really interesting, Kip. And uh, thanks to all of our listeners, and if you want to get in touch with us, just go to BigfootTerrorInTheWoods.com and hit the contact button. And uh, let us know. If you've seen something, say something. Now, Bill, who won? Well, the winner is <laughs> It's Christy with a K. K R I S T I 
First initial of her last name is S, like sugar. Christy S. Uh, and I'll give you the backside of her email is hardynet.com. So, Christy, you know the rules. I've announced you as the winner. And uh, you need to have been listening to this podcast and respond back to me, identifying yourself as the winner and giving me your address so I could send this copy out to you. Very cool. Yeah, awesome. Congratulations, Christy. Mm-hmm. And a happy Thanksgiving to all. And remember, if you should be wandering around Luray, West Virginia, or anywhere else for that matter, you better remember one thing, my friend. Always carry more gun than you think you're going to need. Sleep tight and happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs>